This is gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the Suffering, the suffering Podcast. Podcast. From a young age, we only know what we know. The concepts of good and bad are relative to each individual. Defeat and victories are all based on your experience. Difficulties arrive when you see the possibilities. Your perceptions come alive and you notice what you have or have not. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. It's amazing what human beings can become used to. A difficult life that seems normal is neither viewed positively or negatively, if that's all you know. If you're coming out of the darkness and looking back, you are amazed at how far you've come and what you've accomplished. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felace, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we welcome Stacey Ellis to discuss the suffering of a life in chaos. It was a, t- it was a tough one to name because your story, everybody, you're going to hear something today that is like, wow. I remember talking to you on the phone, and you got done telling me a little brief snippet of your story, and I was just like, wow. <laughs> we need her on. Yeah, it's like you're, you're okay. Fit perfect. All right, what what do I got to do to get you get you up here? Thank you so much for coming all this way. You're very welcome. I know you're a South Jersey girl now, so mm-hmm. yeah. and and not an Eagles fan. Yeah, well, and not an Eagles fan. No, it's funny how all the Eagles fans disappeared now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like before the Super Bowl, everybody's walking around with green and he, like, come on, you're breaking your legs. You had now. a Chiefs hat on when I came in. <laughs> before we get into anything, let's throw a shout out to our marquee sponsor. That's Toyota of Hackensack. We don't trust anybody, but we do trust them. So if you're looking for a car, go to Toyota Hackensack. Sack.com and let them find you a car. My father even bought a car from Toyota. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't know and how to work anything. And he doesn't trust anybody. Doesn't know how to work anything. <laughs> as long as you don't mention any names. That's when, a little when private When it rains, joke. he goes to put the windshield wipers on the sunroof opens. <laughs> so Stacy, I know you traveled so far. Thank you so much. You're, um, you're one of these people that your, your story is just like, it's, it's going to give people perspective on their own lives. You know, everybody's suffering is, as Mike says, unto themselves. Now yours, you went where few people have ever gone. Yeah. 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 But before we hear anything about it, each week we take a question from our audience. This week's social media question comes from S498 underscore kindness. That was a long one. What's your favorite quote? Now I know in your your recovery, that just gives you a little window into what we're going to talk about. You're probably heard quote after quote after quote to try to help you get through. What's your favorite one? So I'm going to say... The fir- my first and favorite quote that I replay in my head repetitively was said to me from my first drug and alcohol counselor when I was in rehab, when I made the first like honest attempt at sobriety. And it was, if not now, when? Mm, I like yeah. that. And you can apply that to all different aspects mm-hmm. of your life. Yeah, no doubt about that. Mike, I know you're a huge quote guy. So this one, this one was tailor-made for you. I narrowed it down to three. Uh, That's how many quotes I have. <laughs> three. Just three? Just three. Well, I, I had them about six, but I crossed some off. W- one of my favorites is is never get upset. Get up and set yourself. Okay. You know, I mean, that that's it. If you if you sit there and let things really fester, fester, yeah. you know, it's going to get to you. The, the other one that I heard, and I heard it just the other day, I opened two gifts this morning. They were my eyes. And that, I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just deep, you know. And the, are we three minutes in yet? Yes, we're three minutes okay. in. The other one is no fucks given. No fucks. <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> what happens, happens. For me, I, I heard this one recently. It's, if you think you can, you're right. If you think you can't, you're right. It all depends on what kind of drive you have in your mindset. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I that- I said that last week. 
No, I said that one. <sighs> we got footage now. This is all on camera to verify. We need fact checkers back there, Drew. <laughs> Can I tell you my favorite quote? It's like a prairie fire. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Armor. Inside joke. Armor. Um, thank you so much for sending in your social media questions. And I have to actually read the, the name of the person that sent this one in. S498 underscore kindness. Thank you so much. Keep sending in those questions. We will try to get them on the air. Now, Stacy, come all this way. And why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a, as from the quote, I'm a person in recovery. Um, I'm also, you know, a person who survived like the depths of addiction, but I'm also a person that is very grateful every day. And I would not change anything that I went through. I wouldn't change one second of it because it's like when you live in the dark, for so long and you're finally in the light there's not a day that goes by that i'm not just so grateful for the people i have the life i have the job i have the hope i have the dark almost makes you the person that you are yep exactly and i still embrace it like i still find beauty in all the pain and everything that happened i mean that's that's really like the genesis behind the show though you know you have to go through some kind Mm -hmm. of suffering to make you the person that you are today yeah there's a lot of people out there with short memories you know, they've gone through something and they're through it and they sort of just leave that world behind. They don't want to think about it again. They almost run away from the prairie fire. But when you face that and you're willing to give back, that's really a fulfilled life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you do. And that's where you are now from what I understand. So you are you are you married? You have kids? Recently married. I'm recently married. Um, Congratulations. I have a, thank you. Wonderful. Well, it depends on how you look son. at. Depends on how you look at that. <laughs> well, I'm in the first year, so okay. it's still a congratulations. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> still I'm like 20 years in, so okay. Um, I have a 10 year old. I'm a year stepson. out. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> you have a 10 year old son. Yeah, stepson. Yeah. Stepson. Okay. Yep. He's like my best friend. That's a great part about being a step parent is I just get to say yes to everything <laughs> and do all the fun stuff, but. He's amazing. Of course, you got to, you, a 10 year old, at the 10 year old, you really Mm got to, you got to get him to like you. Yeah. Especially coming in, coming in cold like that. Yeah. So you got to, you get to do everything. Stealing dad away from him, you know, so now you're. (laughs) Yeah, but he's like the adult in the household. Between me, him, and the father, he's like the adult. I'm like, he's like, I think it's my bedtime. Don't you want to stay up a little late? Like, like, you want to watch this? He's like, I don't think it would be wise. Well, you, I don't think I should. You you don't seem that old. Can may I ask how old you are? I'm going to be forty this year. Which oh is my gosh! Me great anxiety. Wow. I might add. Wait, forty's tough. I'm yeah. approaching fifty, and I'm not looking forward. To yeah, it. I'm approaching but, sixty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a pro. I'm I'm towing that line, and I don't like it. And I I don't even want to think about sixty yet because I can barely walk at almost fifty. Um. So, you know, you you. I don't even know where to start here. Like I, I, I've heard this and I, I want to make sure I tee it up properly as a child. What's your earliest childhood memory? So my earliest childhood memory, I was born into a family of chaos, suffering. And, um, both my parents were addicts. My mom was mentally ill. And, um, what was their drug of choice? I mean, you name it back in the day, they called meth crank. So yeah, my crank. dad was big that. on crank. Um, my mom just na- like whatever man she was married to yeah. at the time, basically. Um, but the first memory that sticks out to me, so, so my mom left me with my dad and 
you know, my dad's house was crazy, like people in and out. He he sold through like the window. I remember weighing things out on like old school triple beams. But the one like the most thing I remember about that, despite all the chaos, is I felt loved like I maybe he didn't know how to be a dad, but he knew how to love me. And I felt loved. And I remember I had to be probably four years old, three and a half, four years old in, in the yard playing and the yard had like rocks. And um, this woman who I didn't really know her to see her came to like this gate and like I recognized her voice and I just remember running to her. And it was, I distinctly remember I was, I was running, like these rocks aren't hurting my feet, but it was my mom. Yeah. You know, so wow. just because you're, you, you have an addiction doesn't mean you don't love your children. And yeah. there's a case in point. So one of the first times I ever saw something that just really turned my stomach, uh, where I worked as a police officer, uh, was a conduit line from Newark to Pennsylvania with the drug trade, with the heroin trade specifically. And they would always pull over in my town. And get their fix before they, they yeah. headed back. After to, they cop, they pull over near town. And, right. And they had a they had an infant in the car. It wasn't an infant. Probably eight, nine months. You know, it, it was in a car seat. But I was so young. I didn't have children at the time. And I didn't know. I didn't even, I've never even held a baby. Like, that's how green I was. And I remember we were wearing our long sleeve shirts. We get the people out. There's three of them in there. There's two guys and a girl. And the girls, they were the, the parents were there. And I held this baby, and the baby's diaper was so wet. Now, diapers can hold a lot of stuff. The diaper was so wet that it soaked my arm. And I said, and I'm like, you motherfuckers. Like, I I was so mad at the parents. But this will show you the parents' love. The two men in there, the the father specifically, copped to everything so she could go home with the child. And I know she was using. I know she was. But that's, that's that's a mother and a father's love. But mm-hmm. there's a child's love also. Child, children don't know addiction. Correct. They just know their parents, you they know, and they know love their parents. their parents. My mother was my first addiction by far. She was the first thing. Now, why did your mother I, leave, though? So, I mean, who knows? She, did she go away? That's that's. Uh, she went down to Florida. I was born up here in New Jersey. She went down to Florida and married some biker dude <laughs> in like a biker some club. crankhead. Down there. But like that was my mom's routine her whole life. She just cut and run from everything. And um. When she got me from that yard that day, she took me down to Florida and took me from, you know, my dad. So and, she, uh, she didn't like kidnap you or anything. She just called you over and you went with her and you were gone or. I mean, that's, there was no like legal custody. Yeah. I don't think that she came and got me because she wanted to raise me and love me. And like she missed me all these years and was wondering how I was doing. I don't think that I just think she was in like a momentary spurt where she wanted to play mommy. And uh so we went down to Florida and she was married to some guy who was not nice, who was very abusive. And um, to your mother or to you also to me also and my mother. And, uh, you know, that's that's where like the chaos really began. And my mom was drunk all the time, going out with other men. And like my stepdad had a rule like he would stay and babysit us, but we had to be in bed. So I remember. My mom would put us to bed at like two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon. And like we would see kids playing in the yard and the ice cream driving by. And like we would be in bed. You, and, there was another sibling. I was going to say, you say us sister and a and a half brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So there was, th- there was three of you there. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So your mother's out with different men while your stepfather. That's kind of weird. 
Yeah. It's kind of it's chaos. It's, it's chaos. Yeah. <laughs> so w- when Stacy and I were talking about this, I'm like, I, I don't know how to name this episode. And when you were telling me a little bit of your story, is your life just sounds chaotic. Mm-hmm. And that was the calm part. Yeah. <laughs> like Here we go. Did your dad ever come looking for you, though? So my dad, for whatever reason, you know, I don't know to this day why he couldn't get me back from the state. I think he had like warrants or he was not able to really get custody. So did he? But, but he wanted to, though. He wanted to. Yeah. From what I believe. But from that day, there wasn't really any contact that I remember with my dad until years later. So as a, as a child, you probably saw some really horrible things. Yeah. What do you think the worst thing it is that that, that you saw? Well, shortly after going down to my mom, she was very neglectful, like our our wouldn't brush our hair, like we would go to like try to walk ourselves to school at 5 years old and our hair would be matted and I just remember the crossing guards trying to comb it out. But what happens when you send a kid to school like that? Like the teacher's called DIFUS, yeah. CPS, whatever you want to call it. And um, the police came to the school and took me away. It's tough because you know I, I've actually seen it coaching young kids in the town I live in. I've seen it where parents have some stuff going on, you know, for whatever reason. They have some stuff going on. But here's a child who just wants to be a child. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, they're already got sort of one strike against them. Now, did you ever, Mike, did you ever pull over a car from one of the inner cities <laughs> And you see, I, I can I can still remember to this day, it was a minivan and there was like seven kids in there. All of them should have been in car seats, but most of them weren't. They're dirty, snot hanging off their nose. They, they were all from different parents. And you, you, your heart bleeds for these kids because you're like, man, you don't even have a chance. But like mm-hmm. you said before, you know, that's a child's love. They don't know any better. Mm-hmm. That's the life mm-hmm. they know. They just know they love their parents. Yeah. You know, they don't know that just not running down their nose. They didn't know that your hair is supposed to be matted. Yeah. yeah. Were you like picked on in school or anything? Like because your hair was always matted or oh, anything? Incredibly. But then started my rounds in foster cares and group homes. I mean, by the dozens. Yeah. And like the whole time we're speaking of a mother's love. Like I just knew my mom was the victim and like this system was in place to keep me away from her. I remember them trying to put me in counseling and I would sit there for the whole hour and not open my mouth or say anything because I felt like they were trying to convince me my mom didn't love me. Yeah. And, like, make me mad at her. Um, What's the age? I mean, I was taken away at five. I ran away from foster care to find my mother again at 12. Wow. And in the midst of that, like, my mom did, like, jail time for child abuse charges against me. No kidding. Child neglect. Well, was it neglect or was it it abuse too? Do you mind if I ask you what kind of abuse? I mean, with my mom, it was a lot of physical abuse i remember when the police came to the classroom to take me out they made me get down and like strip down to my underwear in the guidance counselor's office and like took pictures of me and marked every bruise on my body and it was mortifying and in that very moment is when my absolute disdain for authority began because these people say you're there to help Help you you, and and, like i felt embarrassed what what were some of the reasons that your mother would, would hit you so it was it was numerous things. One, if we embarrassed her in public, if we wouldn't go to bed so she could go out at night, um, you name it. It didn't it didn't really it didn't take too much. I mean, she was mentally ill as well as, you know, addicted to substances. So Well, do you think and I don't know anything about your mother, do you think that there's something in her past that made this this way? I mean, I couldn't tell you. I never 
you really ne- dug too deep into I don't I you don't never know. met like your grandparents or anything like that. You don't know no, the relationship between your parents and their parents. No, they're all deceased. Because usually yeah. when something like that happens, and we've seen it enough, usually when something like that happens, it comes from their past. Product of the yeah. system. Yeah. So I I remember hearing her father was an alcoholic, but I I don't remember and too much out. At some point, that cycle has to break, but sometimes mm-hmm. it takes two, three, four, or five generations in order to break Absolutely. that cycle. Generational curses are real. Yeah. Generational curses are real, and it takes a lot of strength, a lot of power, a lot of dedication, one, to identify it, and two, to break it. Yeah. And sometimes you don't always get it right. Because like I said, if you're, if you're born into that, that's the only thing you know. It's the only thing so you know. So it's just passed on. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, in law enforcement, you, if your dad's a cop, you want to become a cop. Yeah. You know, your mother's an addict. And she's sleeping around or whatever the case may be. That may be the life that you're brought into. Yeah. And then what? You're taken away. And then I'm thrown into this foster care system. And like strangers. Everybody hears stories about what happens to little girls in foster care. Like, unfortunately, they're true. And I went through more hell being in foster care than I ever did being with my biological family. And I just remember thinking, like, if I'm going to be anybody's victim, like, I'd rather be with my real family now did you did you rebel against your foster parents oh my god (laughs) (laughs) which ones (laughs) well so what's the worst in foster care because i i've heard many times foster care system is broken i know they're getting Mm -hmm. money for housing you and Mm -hmm. feeding you but sometimes they use that money for themselves rather than your care what's what's some of the the worst abuse and and again i'm i'm doing this for I, I have questions about this. I've heard stories. Mm-hmm. I've never actually heard somebody tell the true horrors of the foster care system. So sexual abuse. I mean, it took me getting sober to be able to, like, I used to foster dads, foster brothers, foster siblings. Like, they all do stuff. To At, at what age? I mean, starting five. Oh, my god! And then I would have periods of time where I was in, like, a decent home. I had one really good foster home that... To this day, I love them, and like they were, they were good to me. I'll get to that <laughs> later. But they were really good to me. But almost every single home, and then you're putting these group homes, and you're around other kids who ex- were sexually abused themselves, and that's what they do to you. And I, I never told, I never told anybody because no matter what, like you're used to wherever you're at. So if you tell them you're taken out of that home and moved to a different home, you now have to switch schools. You're afraid of people finding out because you're already different. Like, it was this big, dark secret. I used to think they would come in and smother me with a pillow. So it took until I got sober that I could have pillows on my bed. Wow. Because I thought they would come in and smother me. So I wouldn't tell. Now, when you went from foster home to foster home, if there was, like, abuse in the first home, did you almost, like, come to expect it in the second home? Yeah. Did you think it was just a way of the system? Just the way that it was. Like, they had a right. That you were the cast off. You were not loved by your families. And there's even like a competitive nature among children in foster care. So there's always this thing. You want people to think that your parents are trying to get you back. And it's like a competition. The the Oliver Twist. Yeah. The, the, uh, oh, they just, they just lost me one day at the park. And they really want me. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I, you know, it's amazing what kids can get used to. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary too. It's scary to think that there's people out there that are predators like this that will do this to young children. Because kids get used to that because they don't know better. They're so innocent, though. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they don't know anything. And, and their mind is better. their mind is that that's when their mind is molded. 
You know, when you're a kid, when your mind is molded, and that's how your life's going to be, and you just... Yeah. You, so I had this one great foster home. I'm nine at this time, and I've run the gamut of, of numerous homes, group homes. Like, by, by nine years old, by you nine ran the years gamut. Old. <laughs> that's you're, crazy. You're a foster home pro, yeah. Uh-huh, and the caseworker comes and gets me from this current group home I'm in, and... and Brings me to Burger King and tells me, well, we got another foster home for you. Um, my response was, like, you're telling me this like I have a choice. Like, I let me go yeah. pack my artwork in this brown paper bag and, like, let's go. And I went there, and um, that was my first experience with, like, a real family and real love and unconditional love and support and safety. And what I, did that feel like? And what did that feel like when you first experienced that? Uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. You wait for the shoe to drop, but then there's this sense of guilt, right? Because I don't know where my sister is. I don't know where my brother is. Holy cow! Yeah. I forgot about that. You yeah. got a half brother and a sister. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they are. No contact. My mom had visitation every Wednesday for an hour, and I would go down to the state building and I would sit there, and she never showed up. For years. Your mother wouldn't show up. My mother would not show up. And I would sit there and I would go back to these homes and I would make up these lies. Oh, my mom came and like she gave me crap for not doing my schoolwork. And I would I just was so scared that if somebody knew my mom didn't love me, that they would deem me unworthy of love also. So like I built this wall and nobody knew the truth. And then I got to this home and I mean, I acted out. <laughs> I mean, I gave, I gave them a run for their money, but they did everything they could to solve it. And it got to a point where they wanted to adopt me. Well, that guilt that you're talking about, was that guilt? Did you feel like you were damaged goods? No, I felt like I didn't know what they were suffering through. Like oh. I didn't know what my mom was suffering through. I knew she was like, had to do some jail time for charges from when I was young. And I felt like it was my fault and, if only I could hit it better at school or I just felt guilty. I didn't know where my sister was. I didn't know if she was also in foster care. I had no idea. None. Did you ever find out where your sister was eventually? Yeah. So the family wanted to adopt me when it came time for my per- their parental rights to finally be terminated. And we went to court. And I remember that they told me and prepped me that my mom was going to be in this courtroom. And this was the first time I would have seen her for years. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, if I could just lock eyes with this woman, she'll know that I love her and, like, I've missed her and, like, I just want her and she's going to be and so And you want to go back to that. After all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. After all this yep. stuff. That's how resilient children are. They still <clears throat> love their parents. They you want to. Parents. They want to love their parents. Yeah. So, unfortunately, some parents don't deserve to be parents. Yeah. I'm not saying that about your mother, but that's the truth. So, I walk in this courtroom and she's in handcuffs and shackles and she looked at me and she said you look like an effing norman rockwell child i didn't know what that meant but i knew like her Mm. tone was not good and she wasn't happy to see me and um we went back to the the foster home and um like a couple weeks later i got a letter from my mom and i remember it saying like you know if you if you're adopted and you let them adopt you i won't be your mommy no more And, like, basically, how dare you live this comfortable life while I'm in jail? And guilt got me. This, like, distorted sense of loyalty got me. And I told them I don't want them to adopt me. It's a guilt trip. um, Kids, kids, I guess you, I never thought of it that way. Do you have a say whether you want them to adopt you? So, I'm not, they respected what I said. So, I I told them. And um, they said, if you go to six weeks of counseling... And at the end of six weeks, if you look us in the face and you tell us you don't love us, we'll let you go. We'll call your caseworker. We'll send you off. 
And um, we went to six weeks of counseling. I didn't say a word. I was scared. I felt like if I said one thing that all the emotions would come out and they would realize that I did really love them and I wanted them to be my family. I just didn't know how to accept it. And um, I told them, no, the hardest lie I've ever told in my life is the end of that counseling session when we were in the parking lot. And I remember the foster mom grabbing me by my shoulder saying, tell me, tell me. And I told her, I said, I don't, I don't love you. And I don't, I don't want to be a part of this family. Wow. Holy, and, and that probably, they, I, probably tore, tore you up mm-hmm. and tore them up. That's what yeah. I'm saying. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Their, their heart must have been broken. Yep. Yeah. And what happened? Called my caseworker. By this time, I'm 12 years old. So I'm older. So you're a whole, you appeal to a whole new variety of men and some really, really bad things happened in oh, one yeah. home sure. I was in. And um, I said, you know what? I'm not nobody's victim no more. And you have a red folder <laughs> in foster care. And I knew before they terminate rights, they co- try to contact every biological family member. And I knew there was information in this folder. So I broke into this current foster mom's room and I stole this folder and I ran away. <laughs> and it's back when like you, I snuck on a Greyhound because I had, I found this address, a New Jersey address. It's all it was, no name, no phone number. And I, it's when like kids rode for free on the Greyhound. So I like mm-hmm. hold the little lady's coat in front of me and it took me eight days. Sometimes you get on, sometimes you don't I'm trying to take a Greyhound up here. And it, the address turned out to be my dad's sister. Well, how'd you survive? Eight days with, I'm assuming you had no money or did you? St- no. How did you do that? Like Just- people give you food. They see a, 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 little, a little kid bit. and like by this time, like my powers of manipulation were, were pretty good, you know? You had to develop certain skills that yeah. the normal skills. Tw- the, mm-hmm. the normal 12 year old doesn't have. Yeah. You had to be yeah. a little bit cunning, probably a little bit manipulative. Mm-hmm. God. I- <laughs> but like when, when, if someone saw someone on a Greyhound, don't you think they'd call the police? You, you know got, what I'm saying? You get to you get this 12-year-old Back then, the people girl. that rode Greyhounds weren't really all that. <laughs> You're you not know, talking about the top brass. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason they're on a Greyhound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, True. <laughs> Which made me incredibly comfortable, right? But, because I was, if I was with some kind of different demographic, I would have been uncomfortable because I would have stood out. Like well, a sore yeah, thumb. You, you had a certain connection with those that type mm-hmm. of people. But, I felt safe. But now yeah. you're 12 years old. Mm-hmm. You're out on your own. And now you appeal to a whole, you're a victim to a whole different crowd of people. Mm-hmm. What was... Special men, because I'm sure you're starting to develop at that point. 12 years old, yeah. So that was actually the safest I've been as far as like predators are concerned, because they put me back in contact when my mom was out of jail with my biological mom. And I spent my time chasing her around like I was her victim. At that point, and she kept me very isolated. You have to remember, if I was seen outside with her, she would get arrested for kidnapping. So I was very much hidden. Like, I couldn't go outside during the day. I could not enroll in school. Last grade I completed until I got sober was the sixth grade. Like, I I couldn't go to school. I couldn't do anything. Were there any moments of clarity with your mother? No. Mm -mm. I I got a 13-year-old. So this is hitting a little close to home. I, I can't imagine. Number one, my thirteen-year-old six foot tall, so I don't think anybody's going to hit him. <laughs> he ain't um, riding no greyhounds anytime. Yeah, soon. he doesn't fit too well in a greyhound seat. But I can't imagine him being out on his own devices because at, at twelve or thirteen years old, your decision making—you think it's good, but it's probably not the best. But I didn't even have 
the luxury of running in crowds. I was hidden from the world, fully dependent on my mom. Reconnected with my sister. My sister would never put in foster care. My sister was sent to live with family. My dad, my aunt, and um, when my mom got out of jail, we reconnected. I mean, nothing stable. It was like living in this state, living in that state. My mom would bartend. Sometimes she would go to work and not come home for two or three days, and we'd have nothing to eat. And we couldn't leave because then people would know. And, like, we seen what happened when you asked for help. So we would, like, ration out coffee cakes and, like, food. There was no, like, free time. I didn't, like, I was just hidden, chasing her around, trying what I thought at the time to keep her alive. And did you did your dad ever come back into the picture? So we reconnected with him off and on. My dad, by this time, was a severe um, alcoholic. I think he suffered from depression, too. He, I just remember, like, seeing him off and on and him crying and, like, apologizing for all those years I was in foster care. I never shared with my my mom or my dad um, what happened to me when I was in foster care. It was kind of a burden that I carried. I didn't want to put too much more on them. It wasn't only until recently my sister found out. And your sister was, for all intents and purposes, left untouched. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, well, there, there's some positive news because that worry, that, that thought of the unknown probably weighed very heavily on a 12-year-old yes. shoulder, you know, as you developed. Yeah. She younger sister or older? She's a year younger. So how so long? So you, you were kind of taking care of her. It was your younger sister. You know, it was. I feel like she kind of, she was very level-headed, a lot like my stepson. I mean, I feel like she was very, you know, rational. I did start drinking when I was 12 with my mom. And my, like, my mom would like to play quarters and she would get mad if I wouldn't drink with her and say, oh, you think, <laughs> you think you're better than me and like I started all that. My sister went to school and she did well in school and she was able to leave the house. And this is not only this stuff. This is why I wanted you to come in here because this is stuff that you see in movies. Yeah. Okay. And you think that it's cinematic license. It's not. This is this is real. And even though it's 2023, I'm sure it's still happening mm-hmm. over and over and over again. You know, the system, as much as the system tries to guard against these things, they're still these bad people out. Bad people are always going to be around. Yeah, the good people that work for the system, they're just outnumbered. Yeah. They're yeah. just completely overwhelmed. Outnumbered. They're, yeah. they're trying to do the right thing, but mm-hmm. again, they're they're part of the system too. And it, you know. Mm-hmm. How long did it, did it last where there was I don't stability is not the right word. How long did this last with your with your mother and your sister? So I yeah, stability is not the right word. She would leave us and not come home. Um I ended up I was probably 14 when I ended up homeless in Daytona Beach. Um, my mom sent me to the store. This is like, I laugh about it, but I, like I'm in touch with the fact that it's not all that funny. You know, I sometimes don't realize like how dramatic this stuff is until I say something and see the look on some, to me, it's normal. It's all I knew. So I got sent to the store and I come home and she's gone. And she's like, we lived in some seedy hotel and she's like packed and moved. And that's when I ended up. So your mother, wait, 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 hold on a second. Time out. So your, your mother sends you out and then just it leaves by the time I get back. Gone. Where was your sister at this point? Fuck is this my woman? sister was back with my dad. Who the fuck is this woman? Yeah. God damn! How, how do you do that to your to your blood? I don't. I it's a it's a foreign concept to me. It really is a foreign concept to me. And you know, kids, especially at that age, fourteen years old, will 
you know, they'll, they'll start rebelling against their parents a little bit and they'll say, oh, I hate you. I hate you. Really? Do you? Well, let me introduce you to Stacy Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You say you hate me. I'm going to show you when it, when the hate is, because I, I, I don't know whether it was hate or not, but it sounds a lot like resent. You sound like your mother really resented you. I felt like she did. I, and I, I really I, if I went out and I came home, my door was locked and I couldn't get in. I felt like. I yeah. felt like I was homeless, you yeah. know, and I knew my mother was coming home soon. You know, it's just my yeah. door was locked. How do you come home to nothing like that? And it's not even shocking in the moment because you expect things like that from her. It's like it's strange it, to expect. It's like what now? What yeah, next? But what do you do at that point? You go to the hotel and she's not there. I mean, what's your next step? So, I mean, luckily Daytona Beach has a lot of hotels. I used to sleep on like the lawn chairs out back of the hotel. The weather's decent. Weather's decent, um, and that's that's about it. And just puts around. Then I start, you know, I started getting into the drugs and the drinking and heavy acid use well, at so that point. There was a short time in my life where I was homeless, and we're talking like three weeks. All right, and I, I was an adult. I was twenty something, and I was I lived in my car, and um, I remember the feeling. You, you try to find some place. At least I had a domicile, which was my car. I remember trying to find a place just to bed down for the night. You know, half the time I'd get woken up with a flashlight in my face, making sure I was okay. But I remember the hopelessness, like the hopeless feeling like this is, this is it. This is how it ends. Did it ever, did it ever think like, did that ever cross your mind? Like this, that hopelessness overtake you? So a few times, but I, I honestly can tell you, I felt grateful that I wasn't in foster care so being homeless is better than being in foster care for you Mm -hmm. you know obviously if you get lucky that's that's a different story Mm -hmm. that's we're not going to be sponsored by any foster care companies coming up (laughs) anytime soon i think (laughs) this is this is something how do you communicate to a young child to say hey pick up the phone and call us we can take you to somewhere that's safe when you're not safe when you're being abused Mm -hmm. when you're being physically and sexually abused and my behavior up to that point, like you're, you you're blame? put on a certain I, list. Like I behave terribly. So there's a lot of homes I wasn't eligible yeah. to go into. Like I was ranked, some, whatever the ranking is, differently. Yeah. Than, this isn't Annie. You know, yeah. <laughs> This isn't Daddy Warbucks is not going to come and take you away. I'm sure there were some kids in there that hoped for that. Mm-hmm. So the drink, you get involved in the drinking and the drugs. Mm-hmm. When the first time you got drunk... Did the pain subside a little bit or did that feeling of, or did it just so, numb it a little bit? The first time I got drunk, I was five years old with my mother. She used to think it was funny to like oh my give God. me beer and watch me stumble. Yeah, watch this kid stumble around. So oh my God. when I started drinking without being encouraged to drink, it was tied into that same memory of this is what I have to do to be accepted. Like, And also like my situation was hopeless like you said so to reach oblivion on a daily basis was good it makes you a little less conscious about it was numbing and it it was a a break from reality a break from reality and then i got to a point when i was 17 and i was like there's there has to be more to life than this and i called my old caseworker and i said i need i need help like i don't know what to do but what i'm not willing to do is go back into foster care like i need to emancipate myself and 
they just started developing this program called the Independent Living Program in Florida. And it's where you could kind of be emancipated and live on your own and receive financial assistance. They just had certain stipulations. So you had to have an apartment willing to rent to you. You had to have your GED. You had to have $1,000 saved in the bank. And you had to have a job. Well, with no ID, no nothing, I felt like it was impossible. But I always knew, like, there you, has to be a way to you do were this. really a lost child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you could have said your name was Phyllis, whatever you wanted. You could have made up whatever you wanted to do. Did did that ever happen? Yeah. Because, you know, in order to get something that you needed mm-hmm. to survive. Yeah. I started to save the $1,000 I needed. I started working at some hole-in-the-wall pizza place under a false name with some ID I found from somebody in North Carolina. <laughs> that was probably a tourist in Daytona. And I got... The money saved. And I was the one of the first people in the state of Florida to emancipate themselves and get entered into this program while on runaway status. And I did it over a little payphone with a hearing with the judge. And um and that's when that began. But by this time, like yeah, now now you think like that's the end of the story. Now I had this raging drug problem. I was a full blown alcoholic, but I never knew it was a problem because that's just what people did. It was the norm. Yeah, it was the norm. I, I had no idea. Did you ever engage in any type of criminal activity in order to survive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> statute of limitations is probably yeah, over. Yeah. yeah. So like what what would you do? Like if I'm if I'm a tourist down in Daytona, you see me as a mark, how would you how would you go about doing it? So you get them real drunk and you rob them. That's the quick <laughs> and easy checking for un a guy who was cars. interested in you like a, a not even necessarily. You get the young kids that are there on vacation interested in you, teenage boys, young adult boys, and then you get them to rob their dad for you. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a crime unless you commit it. I'm telling you. Yeah. So. The- and then what's my name? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, <laughs> She's still got the name. North Carolina yeah. ID, so nobody knows who she is. Yeah. <laughs> Why is your name Sid Horowitz? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, how bad did the drug problem get? I mean, it got it got real. Real bad. Looking back, it wasn't as bad as it it would have gotten, like in my 20s and 30s. But it was bad enough, so I, I really couldn't function. And then I started being able to function above the board, right? So, like, now I could get a job in my name and an ID and a driver's license, but I didn't know how to live. I had no example. I didn't, I didn't know what credit was. I didn't know anything. So, like, my solution to that was marry some older surfer. Dude, <laughs> that could take care of you. So, so you get married. I got married. Okay. Don't remember nothing about it. It was like some drunken weekend. <laughs> I had a couple of them. Yeah. I never got married on a drunken weekend. Mm-hmm. Though. <laughs> <laughs> what was that marriage like? I mean, it, it was all blur. I don't really remember. I um. Was he drinking and drugging too? Yes, he's the one that introduced me to opiates. And not like he said, here, take this. He was doing it. I found out he was doing it and he couldn't and wouldn't stop doing it. So I was like, you can't. Opiates such as heroin? Started off with pain pills. Pain this pills. Is back in Florida when the pain pill mills were, were big. Yeah, those pain pills are, nobody yeah. ever thought they, yeah. as a matter of fact, the statistic I heard is when the the pharmacy, the uh, pharmaceutical companies developed those pain pills, they said only Less than 1% of people will ever get addicted to mm-hmm. it. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I didn't know. I just started taking them. And then we started having, we, I mean, I don't think I ever took the marriage seriously. It was like a marriage of convenience. It was just a marriage of convenience. Like he had his life. I had my life. I can't ever tell you that. I feel like I was like completely in love with him. And like, I always knew it was temporary. And at least it was something, the illusion of stability, the illusion of stability. That's what I was aiming at. And right before we got married, I came home. This is when answering machines I'm really aging myself now. We're out and I come home and there was a message on the answer machine from the foster parents that wanted to adopt me. And they just wanted to know how I was doing. And all those years passed by, I've had no contact. How did they find you? I don't know. I still don't know how they got that phone number. Put a tracking chip Maybe. on you. Yeah. Maybe. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Just get a chip in her somewhere. They know, you, they know she's mm-hmm. here now. So how did you get out of that situation? Because I know it's not done yet. No. So the marriage started... Becoming chaotic. My mom was back in and out of my life. She was very sick. Like her looks started fading. So she couldn't latch on to like guys for money and stuff anymore. Very mentally ill. Very mentally ill. Refused to get any help. Um, Addicted to crack at this time and alcohol. And, uh, you know, I thought the next best thing to do would be let's have some kids, right? Like, there's Maybe another I'll get pregnant. If the marriage another, is going bad, yeah, let's just have kids. Let's have some kids. I can't stop drinking and doing drugs. Let me just get pregnant and see how that works out. Yeah, how did how did that yeah. work out for you? So it didn't. <laughs> so I remember giving birth to these kids, and I have identical twin boys too. So I remember holding them, these little tiny, tiny babies in my hand, and looking at them in the face and saying, "I will never do to you what was done to me. I I love you." My life is going to be for you. Like I was put on this earth to be a mother. Every decision I make from here on out is going to be what's best for you. And there was somewhat of a sense of normalcy for a couple years. The old foster parents were like grandparents. They were in the room when I gave birth. They were there every step of the way. Wow, and, what a um, bunch of wonderful people. Wonderful yeah. people. You want to uh, you you say their names on air? God, I'd love to give them credit for being such wonderful people if you if you're willing it's to. Not no. No, no, no problem. Yeah. No problem. Because I mean, I would love to give them credit too, but these people sound like saints. Oh, wait. Yeah, you heard the rest the best of what they've done. So, I had these babies untreated <laughs> drug problem, raging drug problem, started getting arrested, DUIs, domestic violence on the annoying husband that I had that I never really liked in the first place. I mean, just repetitive. And, um, you know, I always told myself when I knew it was a problem and I was able to identify it as drugs were my problem, that I just wasn't like unlucky. And uh, I kept telling myself one more day, one more day, one more day. I'll I'll get better. I'll get better tomorrow. And that one more day never came and something happened. And, um, you know, I had to go to prison and these people stepped in and took those kids. Wait, the the foster parents? Mm -hmm. Holy cow. Now, I went to prison for a while, so... How many years? Almost, if you rack up all my extraditions, I had charges. Shipped to the state, shipped to that state. Shipped to this state, that county, this state, that county. Um, It was almost four years. So what did you get hit for? So manufacturing methamphetamine, fleeing and eluding, armed robbery, possession of a firearm. I mean... You're not a real big Breaking Bad fan, are you? No. (laughs) No, I don't blame you. Although the few episodes I watched on that, it's incredibly accurate. Really? Yes. It's very accurate. God, that's that's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite shows because watching that show, 
I'd never do meth. Mm. <laughs> that's that's the one yeah. thing I, I got out of watching that show. And I wasn't even into meth at the time I was making it. It was more the pain pills. It was just something. Something to fuel your habit? Something to, I just thought it was cool, to be honest with you. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was, like, cool. It was hidden. It gave me the thrill. I was really good at it. And um, that's, making money. Making money. And, like, you got to remember, I'm going back to my roots with my dad now. And, like, my dad made crank, but I, I got to a different level that he never got to with making it. And that made me proud. And I, I felt like I had a connection. In the meantime, my dad died um, from alcoholism. He was 46. Wow. Um, yeah, so they, they took these babies. I did my prison time. I got out. When I was released, I did prison time in Florida. The state of New Jersey extradited me, which is why I'm still here. And uh <laughs> That's how most people stay in New Jersey. She got, a, yeah. she got a free trip up here from Florida. Free trip. Actually, they made me pay for that. Really? They did. They didn't put you on a Greyhound, did they? No, they did A little minivan with like shackles around my, my waist. Oh, that comfortable ride. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. So we used to, when I was with Sheriff Barton, we used to fly them up here. We'd go on like Con Air. to Florida and fly them up. Yeah, no, they drove me. So how bad did it get when you got out? So when I got out, I was expecting a parade. I was expecting this foster family to to hand deliver me my children or maybe come invite me to live with them and be a mom. And, and none of that happened. None of it was based. Like I didn't have a realistic expectation. I thought I made, I did my time. I just went through this horrible experience and I wanted to be acknowledged for that. Plus and, you uh, detox when you go into prison. Detox. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I remember calling them and t telling them I was released and, uh, they said, we're just not comfortable with you having contact. Now, how, how old were the kids at this point? The kids had to be seven, around the age of seven. Now, looking back on that, do you see that as a blessing that you didn't have contact or a curse? I feel like I put them in the position to choose between enabling me or saving my kids. At the time, I felt like I was a victim and it was a curse. Looking back now, that I, I know they made the right choice and I know it was incredibly hard for them to do. That's an incredibly yeah. lucid answer to that question. Yeah, I, was, I had a feeling that you were going to answer it that way. It's mm -hmm. crazy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, almost keeping you from yourself Yeah, in that matter. So where did you go from when you got out? The wonderful streets of uh, Trenton. I felt real comfortable there. I loved it. I thought I made it, you oh. know? <laughs> How long look, look at me. I'm in the state capital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How long were you on the streets for? Probably six years. So for... So for the better part of your, probably more than half your life, you've been homeless. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you saved a lot on rent. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's always a silver lining, but that's, that's incredible that you, and you're not an unattractive woman living on the streets of one of the toughest cities in New Jersey. Wait, you should have seen me then, you know, like the, you start off and like. You looked like a real street junkie. I look, not at first. I got out of prison, had some weight on me, felt like I looked good. But then as like your your drug variations increase, your drug use increase, what you do to get them drugs. I mean, nobody's an idiot. You know what girls on the streets do to get money. Like you start off at a certain level and then as your use and your looks decrease, the level drops. And then next thing you know, I wasn't like the people couch surfing or sleeping in like the homeless shelter. I was like the person you would step over on the curb. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. So what, what dirty and disheveled. And when I went to detox, I had to shave my head. My hair was matted. I didn't brush it or wash it for a year. They had to shave my head. Wow. And th there's not a whole lot of showering going on. Oh, so no. Your, your hygiene. Oh, my 
dear well, lord. That's why I and shave, then that's why I shave my head because I don't I don't shower all that much. So I, I just felt like if head. I showered, I'd sober up. I wasn't gonna waste my my I wasn't waste my hide. Yeah, that's I've never heard that before, but mm-hmm. you, it makes perfect sense. Well, what do you do when somebody's when one of your friends is super drunk? You put them in the shower, try to wake yeah. them up. I'm sure you wouldn't eat much either, right? No, I was 82 pounds when I went to detox, and then also there's a certain level too, like like you do what you do with men for money while you're out there, but some some subconscious level, like you don't want men to be attracted to you, so self care doesn't become important. I started picking my face. Like, and I didn't tie all that in together until later, but I think it all correlates. Well, what, 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 when you were homeless, mm-hmm. what was the, what drugs were you doing? Uh, primarily heroin and crack. So I, I know that that's what, that's a big thing with meth. I don't know if you've ever seen that faces of meth on mm-hmm. online yeah. and you these women look one way and then you just see the yeah. digression of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's really They're all scabs. Yeah. And... It's really sad. Yeah. It's very, very were you sad. you all scabbed up and everything too? Yeah. I mean, I went and. The psychosis and dug my muscle out of my leg one time. <laughs> the side of my leg. I tell people now I got bit by a shark because I feel like it makes me look tough. <laughs> that sounds cool. That sounds much cooler than mm-hmm. that. Yeah. That's a better yeah. stick with that. Yeah. But, <laughs> that's a better story. Uh, but <laughs> coming where you are now, I don't know whether that's the, the shark attack such a better way to go. Well, it depends on the audience. Yeah. You know? There's no sharks in yeah. Trenton. <laughs> There's plenty of sharks. It's Say just not the who? ones in the water. Yeah. It just says the one in the water. But it's amazing that, you know, looking the way you making trying to make yourself look unattractive and mm-hmm. men still do what men do mm-hmm. in those areas. Isn't that God damn. I don't know. I don't know. It's a it's a very foreign world to now, me. Now like what year was this? Two thousand and 11, maybe I was out there longer than I thought, 2011, wow. to me, I finally got sober in 2018. So mm-hmm. was the weed man down there back then? Yeah. Trenton? Uh-huh. Well, believe it or not, I see the weed man by my neighborhood all the yeah. time. Yeah. I, all the time. He goes to that bagel store that we used to go he, to. He used to have a, a store down there. Yeah. yeah. And it's it yep. the weed man. Mm-hmm. The weed man's joint was it's, the name yeah. of it. It's all over the side of his car. Yeah. But weed wasn't what you were doing. And what, no. what changed? Like, what snapped you out of it? Because you don't go where you've been and then one day say, I'm done. Yeah, I'm over. I'm done. So I did have infrequent contact, lost complete contact with my sister all the years I was out there. She thought I was dead. She did not know where I was, no communication. I did have infrequent contact with my mother. And um, she ended up, while I was in the depths of like the worst I went, she committed suicide. And- Mm. um. I would like to say that's when I got sober. And like the way she did it was was very enlightening to me. She like slit her wrist, took a bunch of pills, changed her mind, went to try to go walk out and get help. And she fell down and aspirated on her own vomit. And um, that's not so much that got me sober, but that was the last contact I had with another human being that knew where I was and what I was doing out there. So I just remember being in like this abandoned house one day trying to do what I do in my neck by candlelight and a little sliver of a mirror. And, um, that's where you would shoot in your neck in my neck. Yeah. And, um, I got a glimpse of my eyes in this little sliver and it's not how bad I looked. Cause I, I didn't think I looked bad. I didn't know. Um, it was that I seen nothing looking back. I had no soul, no purpose, no nothing. Like looking right through yourself, looking right through yourself. And I realized that if I were to die out there, there'd be nobody to even claim my body. Nobody would even know I was missing. Nobody knew where I was, what I was doing for many, many years. I, I was written off for dead a long time ago. Like you said, your sister thought you were dead anyway, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. got to be a weird feeling, just 
you're faceless, you're nameless, mm-hmm. you're soulless. Jane Doe. Yep. Very lonely feeling, but that's almost what I was seeking out there. I was taught and preconditioned, like through my childhood, don't stand out. Don't let nobody see you. You have to remain invisible. Like mm. you have to. And then there was this nonprofit and um, they used to go around and like help you get into treatment and this one founder is called Heroin Kills New Jersey. And he I was in contact with him for years. And like he would drive up and down the streets and he would see me and I, I would be like, Oh, I'll call you tomorrow. I'm good. And like he knew. He never confronted me on anything I was doing. It's a faith based organization. And I thought these people were just trying to earn their way into heaven at, at the expense of my soul. And um and then one day, like I don't remember why, how, or when. I mean, I had plenty of stuff to feel well, and usually that's not when people re- reach that poor When they point. run out, yeah. It's when they run out. I had plenty of stuff to feel well, and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I remembered their phone number, and I called them. And they were there within 15 minutes to pick me up and take me to detox. And I go to detox. I don't know how to live. I didn't really, like, withdraw too many times. Like, I was able to, like, stay doing what I was doing. And um, no idea what the future would look like. No family, still not in contact with anybody. Didn't know any phone numbers, didn't know anything. You had to relearn everything. Everything. And these people showed up and they visited me every visitation day. Every visitation day, they found a halfway house, put me through a halfway house, came on family day. Like, I still have the towels. This lady, Diane, who is like my mother now, like, I, I just love her. And I would not be here if it wasn't for, without, like, wasn't for her always believing in me she brought me these towels and wrote my little name on the tag and i still have them yeah. and um that's the reminders the do reminder you, of where where you, and yeah. when do you keep any other reminders of your time in the depths so not i mean i had things like my name tag but when i checked in to detox the only thing i owned for some reason in my psychosis was this broken mop bucket <laughs> <laughs> and I carried this thing around with me. I have no idea why, but like I had an attachment and like I remember signing out and them giving me my mop bucket. And I was like, what is this? Like, is this a joke? But it was a broken mop bucket. There were, there were maybe something, there's something to be said. Maybe your soul was in that bucket and you're, trying, you're trying to put it back in you. Yeah. Um, Did you uh, OD at all? Oh, plenty of times. Plenty. <laughs> like, plenty. It's, like, no, do, it's do you like, understand how Stacy just said uh-huh. it? Did you think, yeah. oh, yeah, plenty, plenty. of times. Yeah. Sure. No, like, sure. Like Narcan and going to the hospital yeah. and all that? or Narcan, being taken to the hospital, waking up in the hospital, them shuffling you out of the hospital. They cut off my clothes, so I would shuffle down the street in, like, a hospital gown, find clothes on the side of the road, put them on. I had trouble identifying like letters and numbers when I first got sober. Like I could see, I knew what it was in my head, but I had trouble making my mouth say it. And I I mean, I have to assume it was a result of so many overdoses. I don't know about you, Mike, but I'm assuming it's the same. Narcan for police came out after I retired. Mm -hmm. But everybody tells me that when somebody gets a dose of Narcan up their nose, they wake up and they're super pissed because you took away their high. Oh, it's yeah. the worst. It rips the opiate off the receptor sites in the brain. So not only are you not high, but you're sick. You're in full-blown withdrawal. Oh, my wow. gosh. Yeah. But, hey, Especially from heroin. They say that's the worst. The worst. And, it, you know, there's, there's, you're alive, but you're in a lot of pain. You're in a lot of pain. And, like, doing what I did to make money, it's not like I could just go and, and buy more stuff. There was things that had to transpire and take place and order me 
in order for me to get what I needed that were real hard to do sick. And, I'm uh, sure. <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll keep it at that. <laughs> so you get clean and sober. You're looking mm-hmm. at life through these different eyes. Mm-hmm. What was the first thing when you got finally got sober? What was the first thing you noticed about life? I did, I first thing I noticed was I didn't know anything about anything, and I felt light years behind everybody else. But what I knew when I I mean being in the halfway house before I was even out on my own in sober living, I knew I wanted to help other people, and I knew. I didn't know you could go to detox and like the state would pay for treatment. I always felt like rehab was for people who had families that loved them and would take them there. I didn't know that was available to me. So I would literally go out from the halfway house back to the same corner I got off of and try to get these girls help and be like, I know a way, I know a way. So I knew that I had it on my heart to just help other people. And now that's your new life. And now that's my new life. And I'm a counselor at a um, detox facility. Well, give God out the name pleasure. of the detox because yeah. they're Princeton f- Detox and Recovery Center. They're not Princeton House. Not Princeton House. That's where I went to rehab. Just put, just so I know, that's a Princeton House. We're a little more bougie than Princeton House. No, nah, Princeton House. Well, there was nothing bougie about yeah. Princeton House. It was it was not not the my, not my favorite place in the world, mm-hmm. but it sobered me up because I I don't do well in in confined spaces. Yeah. So so I, that that brings me to like. The Guardian Recovery Network is who I work for, right? Guardian IOP. Guardian IOP. Are, they have places in Florida and Colorado. They have places everywhere. New Hampshire. See, we know. So mm-hmm. Wyoming, I think. Stuart Chiricella introduced me to Stacy, and I know Stewie is really big into Guardian IOP, especially mm-hmm. in Hoboken. He's he's just one of the favorite sons of Hoboken. And yeah, I couldn't be more thrilled that he introduced us because what I think, what you've gone through and where you are now, you went through hell. Like you really went through absolute hell. Some stuff. I, I mean, you on a like movie like. Yeah, and you're not even letting like you're not even telling like the full dirt, like mm. the grab of it. I know you're leaving some stuff out purposely, but damn, like damn. And and now when somebody's uh, checking account gets a little too low, well, guess what? Stacy did. Stacy did it. You can do it too. Mm. You can do it too. And I think that's your power. So the the cool thing now is. All that stuff that you went through, where you used to try to hide all that stuff from people and you never let them know what abuse you went through, now it's your power. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And like what, where I work, I'm in a field. Like I found my purpose through all of this. I work at a place where like I still get intimidated. Like I'm light years beyond, I mean, behind other people. And I come into this place and they see that I care. And they invest in me, they invest in my education, they invest in my future. And like, I get to sit across people every day in a detox at their point of surrender and their eyes are at their shoes and they're sick and they're detoxing. And I could share just a little bit with them. And when you see their eyes lift up off the floor, it's the most amazing. Well, you've been there. I've been there. Well, I was going to say it's a been there, done that thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's perfect for her because, you know, attractive woman, she's very, you know, dresses well and everything. And you could get into those women that are on the street now mm-hmm. and say, I was you one day. Mm-hmm. You know, and look at, look, not look at me now, but look where I am now. Yeah. Now, is there ever a time you're around all these people with an addiction problem? Is there ever a time where your old life starts creeping in the back of your head? And how do you fight that off? I have never been triggered when I've been in the process of helping another person ever. Because that's a big problem when, mm-hmm. in any type of thing. Like, even when Mike and I help, say, an officer in shooting. There's certain things in there that do get me. 
I mean, I, and I feel like I've been very lucky with all of that. Like when I decided to get sober, I was like, okay, so we're doing this now. So I started therapy. I started exploring my mental, physical, emotional, spiritual growth. It's a daily thing. You know, I'm active in AA. I go to AA. I've worked the 12 steps. And, and like it's stuff that I have to do every day to be okay, but I know to do them. And I've seen way too many times of people going back. And now it's almost like I've built this life, right? I have a career. You don't want to ruin it. I mean, I, I would, I'll give you a quick rundown of my felonies. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have a career yeah. with a company that respects me and invests in me. And like they share the same goal when it comes to like client care as I have. I have a husband. The first honest relationship. He taught me how to to love and allow myself to be loved unconditionally. What's what, what was that conversation? I'm assuming your husband knows all of this. If he doesn't, he will now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, know in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was that conversation like with this man that enters your life? Probably mistrustful because your relationships with men probably haven't been really upstanding. What was that like when you first let this go with him? So he never pushed me. He never questioned me. He, I met him in AA. So I was he's say, also was he from AA. the same lifestyle. So like he would hear me tell my story, like he knows what it is, but we never discussed things privately until I was ready. And he never pushed me. And I mean, the hard part is I still have an instinct to cut and run. So like I I've been hyper vigilant. Oh, what do you mean you drank my water? You don't respect me. Like, <laughs> you know, and he's a very patient man. Thank goodness. And, um, you know, he just honors my process and, and he lets me do what I need to do. But he's also like one of the few people, you know, kind of rough around the edges with, with my people skills because of how I grew up. He's one of the people that could come to me and tell me like, yeah. you know, you're getting a little out of control with your tongue. Watch yourself. Yeah. Watch yourself. <laughs> and I'll listen. Now give the name of this, the, of your, of your network, please again, cause they, they're, they do some wonderful work and I want to give them all the props that we can give them. So why don't you give out some plugs? Guardian recovery network. They have, I mean, in my opinion, the best detox in New Jersey, Princeton Detox and Recovery Center, excellent family support every step of the way. The family is included in the process. Our goal, nobody leaves our facility without an aftercare plan in place. We start day one, point of intake, planning their aftercare. We don't just say, oh, you know what? Like, you want to go home? Go home. Like, we do our very best to support the family all along the way and the client and refer them out and like find a facility for them to transfer to that will meet their needs accordingly, whatever that looks like. So Stacy, we're coming to the end here. Mm -hmm. I can't, the, some of the stuff that you, you talked about has scared the shit out of me, <laughs> but it's also inspired me. And that's kind of a, the concept of our show. It's darkness can inspire, mm -hmm. especially when you start seeing the light of all the suffering that you've gone through. What do you think it's taught you? So nothing is given in this world, but there's a lesson in everything. And pain can be beautiful, too. Pain is absolutely beautiful. I, I'm, like, attached to my pain somewhat because I think that's what makes me effective at my job. But I also think that pain is what makes me grateful every day. It makes you life. who you are today. It makes me who I am today. One quick question, and I don't want to prolong this, but your your sons and the former foster parents Do you have a relationship with them so one of them found me last year and um just a quick message on facebook said i don't really 
want to know what happened. I just want to know who you are. And I, I went down and, um, you know, I got to meet this kid. And like, I didn't know in my head is this little tiny boy and like this man walks in the room, but it was the most familiar stranger I've ever seen. He had a calic in the same spot and a mole in the same spot. And I didn't question why, you know, he was the only one ready. And then a few months later, I reached out to the foster mom and asked if I could take her to lunch. And I drove back down to Florida and took her to lunch. And all these years, she thought that I was mad at her. And we just hugged and we cried. And she said she was sorry. And I said, I'm sorry. But like, look, life's not a lifetime movie. So it's not like this big reunification or, or any of that. Like I text her, I stay in as much communication as I can, but those are her kids for every intent and purpose. Yeah. And I would never want to overstep any boundaries <clears throat> that they're not comfortable. She never asked me for a dime. They never asked me. They knew I wasn't in a position to pay, but I'm just very grateful for what they did. You did give the, you, so you did fulfill your promise to those little babies. Mm -hmm. You did yeah. get, you did give them what you didn't have, which is a home. Mm-hmm. Right. Stacy, thank you so much for coming in and Welcome. bearing your soul on this one. This this is a little rough. That's rough. <laughs> it's a little rough. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast. And as always, let's think about all the stuff that we learned. Children only know love, not addiction. Generational curses are real. It's amazing what you can get used to. We all live by our examples. Pain can sometimes be beautiful, but most importantly. And I want to say most importantly, out of the chaos comes Stacey Ellis. Yeah. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode. Don't forget, you can listen every week before you watch. All of our audio episodes come out on Sunday. Don't forget to go to Three Acres Luxury Condominiums in Jersey City. Go to threeacresjc.com. And also, if you like your own digital business card, go to popple.com. Put in TSP20 for a nice 20% discount. Of course, follow us on all social media, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and I'm sure I'm to Twitter. Follow Mike at Mike underscore Felice. Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. And of course, follow the Suffering Podcast. And we're going to see you on the next episode. 